Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I'm your host, Andrei Krenkov. In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Professor In this episode, I'm excited to be interviewing Professor Devi Parikh. Devi Parikh is an associate professor in the School of Interacting Computer at Georgia Tech and a research scientist at Facebook AI Research. Her research interests are in computer vision, natural language processing, embodied AI, human AI collaboration, and AI for creativity. In the past, she has also been an assistant professor at Virginia Tech and a research assistant professor at Toyota Technological Institute at Chicago. She received her MS and PhD degrees from the Electrical and Computing Engineering Department at CMU in 2007 and 2009. Thank you so much for joining us for this interview, Debbie. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. As am I. So uh, getting going, I always have this uh, first question that's the same for everyone, which is how did you get into AI, both in terms of just being interested in it and doing research with it? Yeah, so it's a, it's a bit of a, a, a long story where um, I was in my undergrad. I did my undergrad at uh, Rowan University. Um, it's in it's in southern New Jersey, and at the time, um, I thought I was really interested in computer architecture, and those were the courses that I was enjoying. Um, and as part of the curriculum, we had what was called engineering clinics, where you could sign up for these semester long projects all through the four years. Um, and so, in my junior year, um, I had spoken to the computer architecture professor. I was excited to work with her. She was interested in working with me, so that was the plan. Um, and that semester, we had a new professor uh, join the department, Dr. Roby Polikar, who worked in pattern recognition, which is what we called uh, machine learning uh, at the time, especially in the computer engineering department. Um, and so he was new. That was his research area. Nobody knew him, so students hadn't signed up for his projects. Um, but he had, yeah, so he was interested in having me uh, work with him. And I ended up getting matched with him, with his project. And that was my first exposure to pattern recognition or machine learning. Um, and yeah, and I loved it. I wanted, I did it for the rest of the two years in my undergrad. That's what made me want to do to grad school to continue doing that. Um, and yeah, all the various steps after that just kind of fell in place from there. But that was the start of it. Got it. Yeah, that's exciting. I think it's always... Interesting how you just sort of try something out and then you you find that's really what you want to do, which is great. Yeah, yeah. All righty, then I think as a second topic, I'm going to go a little different from uh, most of my interviews so far, which is not diving into your research uh, yet, but going to another project you have, which is the Humans of AI podcast. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, any of our listeners... Uh, if you, you may know or may not know, but you probably would be interested in knowing that there's this Humans of AI podcast with interviews from various researchers focusing more on the, you know, who they are and not really on AI or, or their work. So I'm curious, uh, what made you want to start that and really do it? <laughs> um, so I think the motivation was fairly straightforward, exactly what you kind of said, where I, I feel like there are... Um, researchers are doing amazing work and all of that is certainly true like they are good at what they're doing and so on but there tends to be this 
notion of like oh so and so is a rock star or so and so is like the godfather of xyz and um all of these things where i feel like we sometimes forget that these are individuals these are people these are human um yes they're doing amazing work they're good at what they do but it doesn't mean that there aren't other aspects of them that we can all relate to right that everyone has or at least most people have something they're insecure about something they're excited about they have everyone has a daily routine everyone has just figuring out like how much coffee do they drink when do they drink coffee people are we trying to cut back on caffeine like all of those regular things that make up our our, our day to day life like it's the same 24 hours we all have to go through the same cycles and i think it's easy to forget that every one of us is going through those same things um obviously there is huge variance i'm not trying to say everyone has the same life but it is one second at a time one hour at a time one day at a time kind of thing and that kind of goes away when you just know someone as like giving invited talks or keynote speakers and reading their conference papers um and so it just seemed like if we can just expose this which is true right it's not like i need to go hunting for it these yeah. are humans and so if we can yeah, yeah. that it might just make everyone more relatable and if there are sort of junior researchers early career researchers if they feel like oh there's never right there's no way i can ever become someone like xyz you realize that no maybe i can because on a day to day basis they are kind of going through some of the same motions as all of us are um and so so that was the motivation and i think the execution or the implementation of it i think was somewhat related to the pandemic in the sense that it had become clear that we can like everyone is on zoom and so i was like well i can just <laughs> reach out to people ask them <laughs> if they want to get on a zoom call ask uh-huh. them if they are okay with me recording it i can record it i can put it on youtube and that's it right there isn't there doesn't have to be this sort of a big production value yeah yeah really, yeah exactly that it can just be very uh, straightforward to um do this and so yeah that was the sort of second seed of inspiration and i was like well i'll just reach out to folks and we'll see what happens and everyone was generous with their time and so yeah that's how that came along yeah that's that's very cool i can certainly understand uh, if there's accomplished researchers they get this sort of aura of like you know being superhuman or something <laughs> exactly, exactly. and then, but you it's good to be reminded that you know we're just people yeah okay. And so in the podcast, uh, you kind of go into a lot of different questions about sort of different aspects of people. Uh, so I'm curious, do you have any favorite questions uh, that you pose as far as I don't know, being interesting or just what you're curious about? <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I mean, so at some level, I think I'm interested in all of them, which is, why I, which is why I had that. But more getting to the substance of your question, a few that... I think maybe I'm more interested in others is things like um what is something that you're trying out these days and and how is that going because that can give you ideas for things you might want to try out uh, mm-hmm. because people sometimes have yeah things that you might not have thought of um the what are you insecure about question I like quite a bit because I think that gets to my earlier point that most people have something at some level um that that they're insecure about and it's just a good reminder um that yeah most people have that and so if you're insecure about something that's not unusual it's just what everyone struggles with um i like the what is a tool or hack that makes your life more convenient efficient or fun because again i think you can get fun pointers from it that you can try out and maybe your life will be more convenient efficient mm. or fun um what is something surprising about you that the rest of us might not guess I think that's a nice way of just learning more about someone you might have preconceived notions you might have assumptions you might think you know something about someone 
and then you find out that oh, there's here's this very surprising thing about them that you wouldn't have thought otherwise. Um, what do you struggle with in life? Similar to the what are you insecure about? Uh, that motivation. Um, and the last one. Uh, when was the last time you felt like a kid in a candy store? Oh um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's good to get to that giddiness and that excitement about something. Might not be a huge deal. Might be something small. Um, but it's nice to try and tease that out of someone. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, with respect to tools, I I think personally I would be very excited because you know you get nerdy and you kind of I thought a lot about optimization and then you're so excited about it. Exactly, exactly. And everyone picks a slightly different pocket to over optimize, right? And so uh-huh. you get yeah. these uh, diversity of like niche things that people have thought a lot about and you can you can potentially get easy access to that. So mm-hmm. well um I had a bit of a hidden motivation for asking that since mm-hmm. now I can, I can go with some of these questions, not to steal <laughs> your whole format, but to, to do just a couple. Um, I, yeah, I found it interesting what you ask what people are trying out. Uh, so she has a professor. I imagine you don't have too much time, but are you trying out anything currently? <laughs> um, yeah, I think there are a few things that I'm, I'm trying out. I really got into macrame over the, over the pandemic where, um, I don't know if everyone listening knows about it, but you essentially make things with your hands and just a set of ropes and just a set of cords. It's kind of like hand weaving. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, you make a whole bunch of knots to make wall hangings or coasters and things like that, which I thought was amazing that you can just start with rope and just knot. And at the end of an hour, you have something you can use. Um, so yeah, I think that is one, um, origami is another that I really got into in the pandemic that I've been trying out. And most recently I've been, um, experimenting with NFTs. I've been, I've been, uh, making generative art for the last several years. And there's all of this excitement around generative art and cryptocurrency and NFTs and things like that, that I'm very much on the periphery of, I'm not like in the center or the middle of all of that. Um, but I'm connected enough where I was seeing it happening. And so I was just kind of curious to dabble in that, see what happens. And that's been um, an interesting journey. It's so disconnected from the rest of my life. I feel like in my life, like in my personal life, my professional life, I don't know anybody else who intersects with this world. And so it's just weird to be kind of the, to have like these completely disconnected worlds um, and be in both of them a little bit. I'm in one world much more. It's not like, yeah, I'm, like I said, I'm not in the center of the generative art and crypto mm-hmm. art space by any means. Um, but that's been interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I follow or happen to follow a good number of artists, AI artists in particular, but also a few generative artists, as well as a lot of AI researchers. So like just on my Twitter timeline, I can see this dichotomy <laughs> with NFTs being kind of overage. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just to, to do one more of those questions that you listed, uh, I think the last time you felt like a kid in a candy store one is uh, super fun. So I'm curious <laughs> if you have your own answer to that. Hmm. Um, I'm trying to think. I feel like it happens frequently with me. <laughs> like I'm frequently... Oh. <laughs> yeah, but there's something small. It's not life-changing or anything, but there's something small that I get really excited about. Um yeah, I, I'm trying to think what the most recent one, this is not super concrete, but I'll, I'll share it anyway, that we, we're recently starting a new project on um, like in the AI and creativity space, looking at sort of multimodal uh, generative models, like text to video generation, text to audio generation and things of that sort. 
Um, and so we recently had some of our first set of results where we had like the first end-to-end pipeline of taking in as input something, producing as output. Um, it's still in a small toy setting, so it's not like earth shattering or anything, but just that in any project, I think that that first moment of the first end-to-end result, I just find that very exciting. Um, and so that had happened uh, recently where, uh, yeah, I felt like a kid in a candy store, but I feel like there's so much more potential ahead and so many exciting things that, that can happen going forward. So, yeah. Yeah. Great answer. I think a lot of researchers, if they're listening, can relate that, that moment when you're like, oh, wow, something is happening. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Something is happening that's not complete garbage. So, yeah. Yeah. And often it's a painful journey to get there. So, yeah. yeah. Well, um, yeah, to move on to a little bit more our style of uh, formats. Um, as you mentioned, you have been experimenting with generative art and NFTs. And uh, personally, I think it's it's quite cool how you have that as a pretty serious focus. You have quite a you know portfolio just looking on your website with things like Ganbook and, and this tessellation. So some of it is AI-based. A lot of it is just generative art. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious uh, what made you want to get into that and, and how did you sort of make the time to <laughs> actually do it? Yeah, so I, um, when did I get into it? I think it was maybe 2018 or so, uh, somewhere around there. Um, and it was actually a, a friend and a colleague uh, who had who had suggested that to me. So that was a time when I had kind of lost a lot of, like I wasn't finding a lot of time to code and I was very specifically missing that, that I liked being hands-on and I just wasn't finding the time to be able to do that. Um, and I have a little bit of these sort of interests in like different art related, like I was mentioning macrame and origami that is more recent, but I've had those tendencies for a while. And so a friend and a colleague had said that, oh, like there's might be a way for you to look at the intersection of this, right? That you should totally explore generative art. Um, and that really kind of scratched that itch of wanting to code, wanting to do something creative. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was my first exposure to it. And I started looking at people and people, there are so many artists that make amazing things. And it just blew my mind. It felt like an endless world of things that you could do with with code in terms of creating these nice aesthetic visual patterns. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's how that's how I kind of started and got hooked. And anything that I would make, I would just put it on my website. I would share it on Twitter or Instagram it was so clear that nobody cared about it. That, <laughs> because, because everyone who follows me is following me for AI related things. And they're like, yeah, we don't really care about your generative art. But that was, that was just sort of a routine that I followed. Whenever I made something, I would put it out there. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's how I got started and got hooked in terms of how do I find the time? Um, I don't know. I don't know if I have, I generally try to like whatever things I care about in life, like I, like to me, caring about something is making sure you prioritize it and and kind of do it. So I think that piece comes uh, somewhat naturally to me. Where yeah, if something is falling through the cracks, it's probably because I don't care. And if I care, then it's not going to fall through the cracks, kind of thing. Um, the explicit tool is like I have this time management blog post on how I use calendars to manage my time as opposed to to do lists and. So, yeah, yes, that is a more direct answer to the how in terms of like the literal tools. Um, so, yeah. Mm, got it. Yeah, I, I've seen that uh, time management tool, which is quite interesting. Uh, I think anyone interested can can go on your website. It's right up front. It's 
pretty pretty unique system i think i don't have the uh planning capacity to try it but uh it's it's awesome that that you have something like that um and with regards to generative art uh, i found it interesting you know there's so much hype about ai art and that's a subset of computer art and then a lot of this discussion of like people ask oh can you know can ai generate art can computer be artists but there's already like you know, 50, 60 years of computer art, generative art, and these questions are kind of old, you know. So um, in that sense, uh, as you said, there's this whole world of generative art aside from GANs or whatever. So I'm curious, uh, as you were discovering it, did did you find something uh, especially appealing or uniquely appealing about this genre, this medium of art as opposed to, I don't know, other ones? Hmm. The the medium being generative art, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think um, what I really like about generative art is that you are working towards, or at least the way I approach it, is that I'm working towards um, a system that can generate a large diversity of pieces while making sure that each one is aesthetically pleasing, right? And I think you can do one or the other, um, I won't say easily, but there is a lot of work that does either one or the other. So you could, for example, be working towards creating this one piece, whatever medium you're using, whether it's a uh, computer or um, analog mediums, um, where yeah, you might be trying to create this one piece that looks nice and is, is something that speaks to you, speaks to others and so on. Um, or you could easily create just sort of a diversity of things for the sake of diversity, but then none of them look all that interesting either to you or to anybody else. Um, and so I think trying to have a mix of these two where you want as much diversity as possible while making sure that each piece individually is interesting. I think that, yeah, like trying to create that portfolio of pieces with one system, with one piece of code, where the only thing that's changing is the different random seed that's going in. Um, I find that to be... Yeah, I find that to be very fascinating, um, both in terms of just the concept on its own that you're, yeah, that you're creating this portfolio, that you're creating a system that generates this portfolio of pieces, and in terms of the iterations that you put in. That as you work on it, you start with something you like it, you try and add some diversity, more variety to it. You end up with pieces that you don't like so much, so you try and kind of constrain it again. And so this push and pull of, um, yeah, between these two factors. I think is 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 quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, and I guess uh, on the topic of sort of trying stuff out, uh, I wonder if any listeners would be inspired to you know give uh, generative art a try. Uh, could you um, you know share your experience getting into it? How did you sort of start making your first works and how did you develop your process and kind of confidence? Yeah. Um, so I think because I had approached it a little bit from the coding itch that I wanted to, wanted to scratch. So my, uh, my starting point was starting with tools that I was already comfortable with in terms of coding and trying to create what I thought were interesting looking visual patterns with that. 
as opposed to figuring out what are the right tools for generative art and for creative coding <laughs> and, and starting from there. So yeah, I kind of started in like this, yeah, in like this weird local minima of coding that I was comfortable in and was trying to make art with it. Um, and then over time, I think I've, uh, especially for when I wanted to create interactive systems. So I have this, like there's a section on my webpage that's called create your own, where you can come in start with a tool and try different parameters and, and get different pieces. Um, and so when I wanted to do those interactive things, it became clear that I will need to use more appropriate tools like JavaScript so that it can actually be on a web page that people can interact with. And that's when I got exposed to something that's called P5.js um, that, yeah, I think that is meant for uh, exactly these kinds of things. Um, and so, yeah, if someone is interested in this, I think it makes sense to start with either processing or the JavaScript portion, which is P5.js. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very cool. I, I've often flirted with the idea of uh, giving it a go, but, you know, haven't made the time myself. Although, you know, I think if, if you're interested, uh, just going to like something like Artbreeder or OneWay ML is a very, very easy thing where you don't need to code anything. You just click and it sort of works. Or you yeah, can go yeah. to your website and play around with your, your tools as well. Right, right. And yeah, and if you're interested in AI-based uh, generative art, then yeah, exactly. I think Runway ML, Art Reader, um, I think those are those are great places to get started. And you should totally do it. You should totally do it if that is something you're interested in. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and you also mentioned, uh, you know, more recently you've been getting into NFTs and... Um, a lot of AI artists have been. So I'm curious uh, what you think is exciting about NFTs. You know, what, what does it bring to the art world in your view? Or is it just something you think is interesting to try? Yeah, I think for me, it was it is primarily that it's something interesting that, that I wanted to try. Um, in terms of what it brings to the art world is, I think, significant. I'm seeing so many generative artists who've been doing amazing work for years or decades who've been yeah creating these yeah just sort of yeah amazing work that they've been doing this whole time and it, it for most artists it was this thing that they're really passionate about but it has to be what they do on the side because you need some other day job that actually pays the bills um for yeah for you to for you to kind of survive right so i think this this potential that you could um, actually live off of doing something that you enjoy so much, that being an opportunity that is being presented to so many people um, all at once, I think is is significant. Um, and I'm seeing these stories on a day to day basis of this actually happening. And so I think that's just that's just mind blowing. Um, I also think that this form that we were discussing earlier, right, that this nature of generative art where it is the system that you're trying to design that can generate a diversity of pieces where each one is good um, is quite unique. That is not something that you come across in other um, contexts or other, other medium in art. Um, and so I think, and, and NFTs are sort of a good fit for that, where each one of these pieces has sort of a unique signature associated with it that um, you can have a certificate for and so on. So I think that match is also um, a good match. And so, yeah, I think that also adds to the excitement here. For sure, yeah, and uh, I guess generative art is you know intrinsically digital, so in that sense, also yeah. uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. Absolutely, yeah. And then uh, moving from that, um, one of your 
main uh, research interests and kind of uh, directions, uh, especially recently, has been AI for creativity, which is a really exciting space and, you know, tons of uh, possibilities there. So uh, I was thinking we could do kind of a thing we do on a podcast where we just go through some of your recent papers that you've co-authored with various people and just, you know, let the listeners know what it's all about and, and uh, what those are. Yeah, that sounds great. So starting out, uh, I saw this paper exploring crowd co-creation scenarios for sketches, which actually isn't AI related, but I still think it's very interesting. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there, uh, what we were uh, interested in was studying how you can set up collaboration mechanisms in the context of uh, sketching that will result in quote-unquote better or more interesting or more creative sketches as a consequence of that collaboration process. And so the setup was the following, where you start with a blank canvas, and then there is one person that comes in and adds some strokes to that canvas, and then someone else comes in and adds more strokes to the canvas, and that keeps going. Um, And so we were looking at if you just had this process where different people are coming in and adding strokes, what does that sketch look like? Um, You can contrast it to a setting where just one person is sketching the whole thing out. What does that look like? And what we found in these two scenarios was that if you have just one person doing the whole thing, one is that there tends to be high variance in what the sketch looks like based on sort of the uh, abilities and motivation of whoever it is that was doing the sketch. Um, And when the sketches were sort of were good, where there was something coherent there, they tended to be a little bit on the boring side in the sense of they would be predictable. Like there might be a sketch of a bird or there might be a sketch of a skyline, like the kinds of things that you would expect people to draw when you tell them, oh, go ahead and draw something, right? <laughs> um, so that's what we saw with individuals. And then on the collaborative setting where everyone is just coming in and adding sketches, what uh, adding strokes to the canvas, what we found was that they were extremely rich, very, very interesting. Like you look at, you can look at each one for a good minute or two and find interesting things happening in different corners. But overall, it was quite chaotic. Like it felt like it was kind of all over the place. And so, yes, you could look at individual parts of the canvas and see some interesting things. But if you take a step back, it just felt like there's just a lot happening here. It's very chaotic. Um, and so then we experimented with this third mode of collaboration where it is still multiple people coming in and adding strokes, but at each stage, there is a bit of a voting step where when you start with a blank canvas, you ask five different people to individually add strokes um, to this blank canvas. So now you have five versions of this first level of strokes and you present all five to a person and they decide which one they want to add more strokes to. So everyone is presented with five versions and they decide which one they want to carry forward. And then only the one that has at least five people who want to carry it forward is the one that goes forward. And those five people had already contributed strokes. So you have five versions of that. That becomes the next round of the five that you present and you kind of keep going from there. Um, so it is it is more um, involved. It is more expensive. There are many more people involved. There are five times in the limit uh, people involved in, in making the sketch. But what we found there was that these sketches were richer uh, and more interesting than what you got with just one person making the whole thing. But they were significantly less chaotic when everyone was just coming in and adding whatever strokes they wanted to. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so we thought that was kind of a nice uh, sweet spot between interestingness, richness, um, but also high quality. Um, and there are some models of computational creativity that do talk about creativity as a mix of sort of this novelty and surprise with also keeping the quality high. Um, and you can do one or the other in somewhat straightforward ways. You can have something that's high quality, but that might just feel like it's boring and expected. Or you can have something that is just completely random. And so by definition, it is unexpected and surprising, but it's not very interesting because it's just kind of random. And so this uh, this voting mechanism seemed like it was hitting a sweet spot between the two. And these sketches were also rated as more creative by the subjects that we had recruited for evaluation. Exciting. Yeah. Uh, I should look up those sketches and check them out. Um, And what sort of lessons do you think you could take away from these human collaborations for uh, human AI uh, collaboration for art creation? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, I feel like we, when we did this study, we were thinking more of what this tells us about how people should collaborate in context outside of sketching or in context even outside of art that when we think mm. of like workplaces and how teams are built and if you're trying to brainstorm on some ideas for a project or things like that um, we were trying to see if there's something here that yeah that that can be good lessons for that um, we didn't push on that too much we certainly haven't done any studies to push this forward but I feel like that is kind of an interesting thing here then this is studying human human collaboration and that is mm-hmm. just very rich and very uh, <laughs> relevant and very important in the world right so mm-hmm. if yeah. there is something and and that that was an interesting thought where if there are ways of studying these collaboration mechanisms in the context of creativity and art then that could um that could be nice and that we might be able to leave some of the more political aspects and so on um out of it to some extent and still study the core collaboration mechanisms. I think that could be interesting. Um, but coming to your question of what does this tell us about human AI collaboration? I'm not entirely sure. We had thought about it as that, so humans were playing two roles in this uh, voting setup, right? One was the humans who were coming in when you're adding the strokes. So you're playing this role of more the generator in terms of sort of Gantt terminology, if you will. And then there was a step of you voting and deciding which sketch you want to add to which you can maybe think of more as the discriminator role. And so we had talked about that if it is human AI collaboration, does it make sense for the AI to play more like the role of a discriminator? Does it make sense for AI to play the role of a generator where the human is the discriminator? Um, And the latter seemed like it might be more effective in that there's more interestingness and new ideas that you need for generation. And so that's where maybe a person needs more help. Whereas we are good at being able to look at something and deciding whether we like it or not. And so maybe we are more natural discriminators, if you will. Um, so, yeah, so there might be something there, but we haven't really pushed on that or explored it systematically too much. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And uh, going off of that, there's kind of the other side where you have another paper uh, with Songwei Ge and some other people called Creative Sketch Generation, which is about creating an AI model actually called Doodler Gand to create doodles and, and sketches. So, um, yeah, I'm curious to hear about that. Yeah. Um, so the motivation behind that work was actually this artist that I follow on Instagram. Um, that the handle that they have is Michelle. Actually, I don't know. I might be mispronouncing it. it might be Michal Levy. M I C H A L E V Y, I believe. 
and they have these amazing doodles that they that they put out they are um i think they are some of it is i think just I, they are hand drawn uh, might be on a digital device or might even be like on paper um but yeah they have these amazing sketches and they follow this specific process where um you start by drawing an arbitrary stroke on the piece of paper so we have like a marker and a paper you just draw an arbitrary stroke you then draw an arbitrary eye um and then you take a step back and think about okay how can this be how can this become a creature in some way and then you can kind of draw the rest of the strokes and color it in and so on um and and so yeah so i thought that was a fascinating setup of of sketching and trying to have this creative exercise and so that's what we tried to see that could could ai models do something similar um and so that was yeah and so can can ai models create these fantastical depictions of creatures that are not very realistic is not what you would see in the real world um but are sort of amazing to look at so that was that was the motivation there yeah and so that's that's an interesting motivation it's always fun to hear these these uh you know initial things that got the project going that you may not see in the paper and then um you know there's been there's been some work in in sketches in particular there's you know some data sets or some work uh, with gans so what was maybe the the new kind of algorithmic uh, you know architectural idea in the paper yeah so i think i think there were a couple of things so one is the algorithmic which i'll which i'll talk about in the second and the other was also like i was saying this setup of wanting to create fantastical depictions of creatures so like the quick draw data set for example is one that um is used very often in sketch generation and that was intended to be somewhat realistic sketches simple sketches of like birds and a variety of other other objects and so yeah this one was going after these really fantastical depictions um of birds and other creatures um in terms of the algorithm um we looked at it as um we figured that it might make sense to have a model that generates these one part at a time um that because these were these fantastical depictions it's hard to have some sort of a holistic model of what all these creatures look like like if we have realistic sketches of birds then birds look a certain way and so you can imagine having models that can model that appearance um but when you have these fantastical depictions there's going they're going to be all over the place and there isn't going to be a lot of similarity between them but at the part level there still might be similarity right that there's probably limited variance to how you might draw the beak of a bird even if you're trying to have a fantastical depiction of it and maybe the way in which these fantastical depictions are different from the more realistic ones might be in terms of how these parts are composed and so yeah so that was kind of the motivation behind the approach um and so we trained these part based gan models where there were two components to it there was one part of the model that decided which part we should be drawing next and then there was another model that decided given that we know this is the part we want to draw where should that part be and what should it look like and then they can sort of iterate back and forth before the model decides that this is now a complete sketch and and we'll stop here um and so we seed the model with that random initial stroke that i had mentioned and that is sort of algorithmically generated um yeah and so you start with that the model will decide to draw the eye first because that's how the training data was collected and then from there it decides which part to draw next and where to draw it and then the sketch sketch completes um what i like about this setup is that it lends itself well to human ai collaboration that because it's drawing one part at a time the next part is in response to what was drawn previously up until this point and so it's very feasible for a human to step in 
and draw the next part. And then the model will still look at that incomplete sketch. And in response to what you drew, where you drew it, will decide what should be drawn next. So it, it very naturally fits into a human being able to step in and sort of humans and AI to collaborate to draw <laughs> fantastical depictions of uh, birds and creatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's... And motivation is fun for fantastical creatures and, and these papers and creativity are always fun because, you know, you could just look at them. You don't need to read it. You could just look <laughs> at the figures and, you know, look at the uh, fun sketches. So, again, yeah. that's creative sketch generation. You can find it, look at the PDF and then check out those uh, weird animals. Yeah, yeah. And we have an online demo for it on uh, the URL, I think, is doodlergan.cloudcv.org where you can play with this model. So you can draw something, the model will draw in response to it, or you can also just have the model draw the whole thing. So there is this interactive demo if anyone wants to try it out. Good to know. And um, sort of related to that, uh, a little different, but I also find this pretty interesting. Uh, Another recent paper you have, actually not so recent, was last year, but still, I think it's interesting, is this paper, Neurosymbolic Generative Art, a Preliminary Study. So yeah, can you give us uh, an overview? Yeah, yeah. So that was one um, piece of work that kind of fell at the intersection of my two worlds, basically. That, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there was a lot, there's a lot of, like we discussed, there's a lot of interesting things that happen in generative art, which most of it doesn't tend to involve AI. Um, And then in AI, we had GANs and more recently other generative models, where at the core of it, it felt like it's very similar things. Like you're starting with random vectors and you're trying to generate something from there. Um, but the two worlds don't really tend to talk to each other a whole lot. And so I was curious if there's something at the intersection that might be an interesting aesthetic. And so the idea was that if we can generate a bunch of uh, data, visual patterns, art pieces, (laughs) whatever you want to call them, using generative art, which can generate as much data as you need, right, because it's code generating them. And then if we trained uh, GANs on them, Um, then what would that aesthetic look like? And is that something that people would like? Would they not like it? Um, And yeah, so this was was sort of a small study that looked at that. And what we found was that people do find the aesthetic interesting. Um, That is at the intersection of sort of this GAN-like organic texture that we usually see, but it's been trained on this very crisp uh, patterns that generative art typically tends to generate. Um, And so, yeah, so people seem to like that aesthetic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, very cool and, and yeah, interesting combination of sort of this rich history of generative art and, and this new world of GANs and so on. Yeah, and it was also the, as the title suggests, it's also sort of an interesting, like there was, there's a lot of conversation around sort of neural models versus symbolic models in AI and trying to have sort of neurosymbolic models and things of that sort. And so this kind of, in a very narrow niche context of generating visual patterns, um, but this is a mix of those two, right? The generative art is a very symbolic approach and then GANs were neural models that were trained on it. And so I think it was also interesting from that perspective. And just one more uh, to get away a bit from the sketches and, and just a visual spectrum. This one seemed uh, very fun to me. Uh, feel the music automatically generating a dance for an input song. So just creating a dance for music, which I can't do at all. So I'm curious <laughs> how you enabled uh, an AI model to do it. 
Yeah. Um, so for that project, our uh, hypothesis, so the setup was that, as you said, given an input piece of music, can we generate um, quote unquote dance? And I think these quotes are, are important. Uh, yeah. Can we generate um, sort of a visual pattern that is moving in a way that will seem like it's in sync with the music? Um, and our hypothesis was that if the visual pattern moved in such a way that whenever the piece of music is similar to each other at two points in time, if the movement that we are seeing is also similar in those two at those two points in time, then the movement will seem like it is synced with music. So that was um, that was the hypothesis, and we were interested in testing out whether that's the case or not. Um, and so that's what we did. We had this search approach that can that is trying to find a pattern of movement such that movements in two point of time is similar if the music was similar. Um, what I particularly like about this, the setup that we had and the approach that we followed was that the approach didn't care what the visual pattern was. It could be stick figures of a person where movement means a certain things, but the limbs are moving and then it will look a bit like dance. It will look like a person is dancing, but the patterns could also be a sequence of a completely abstract pattern that has its own motion associated with it. Um, and the same approach, the same algorithm will just work out of the box where all it needs as in terms of the visual pattern is a sequence of, you can call them animations if you want, or sort of screenshots that are just 10 steps where the motion is interesting or smooth um, in the perspective of whoever is providing it. And then our algorithm will just generate what the right sequence of that movement is irrespective of what the visual pattern was. So the visual pattern itself was completely not relevant. It was just this sequence of 10 uh, things that have been provided, so the 10 states, if you will, that have been identified. And so because mm -hmm. of that, we could generate these patterns in a wide variety of uh, interesting and fun, at least what I thought were interesting and fun ways. And so that was, yeah, that was a fun project. Yeah. And it, again, it's, it's always fun to browse. We see uh, what is the result. Uh, <laughs> And actually, I, I misspoke. I think we need to do one more related because you also have a paper called Dance to Music, Automatic Dance Driven Music Generation, which is kind of the inverse. So what made you think to do that? Was it like this project or, or yeah, what? How did that go about? Yeah, no, I do think it was that project. I think it was very much that, oh, we can go from music to dance. I wonder if we can go the other way kind of thing. Um, so yeah, that that very much was the motivation. Um, and the thinking is also similar. Um, a couple, one, yeah, one thing that we did different there was that it's not, um, in the earlier work that I described, it was a search procedure. So there isn't any machine learning or um, AI, so to speak, in that sense that's involved. There's no learning that's happening for and I should say that that approach was more batch mode in the sense that you need the entire music as input that you can then process and then generate the associated movement um, all at once. So it was not sort of, it wasn't online. You couldn't incrementally generate the pattern, the dance as the music is playing. For the dance to music generation, it felt like the setup just is where it would be nice. Like, I mean, the kinds of applications could be that, oh, if you're just kind of, like if there's a family or as an individual, if you're dancing in your home or yeah, you're just kind of goofing around. If there's music that can be generated while you're doing that, then that could be fun. Um, but you do want that to be online, right? You don't want to just record a dance without any music and then wait for <laughs> the music to be generated right. at least in many of these contexts. And so we wanted something that's online. And so we had trained neural networks that as training data use the music that is generated in this batch fashion 
and then try to mimic that in an online way. Um, so yeah, so that was that was something that was interesting. As far as the music goes, it's not too terribly rich. It is just these five notes from the pentatonic scale. And we had spoken to some folks who know and understand music. And they had said that if you just stick to these notes, anything that you generate will at least sound pleasant. Like it won't be <laughs> pleasant to listen to. And so I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a good bar <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. to be starting at. And then the only thing we had to reason about was whether it's in sync. So we know that the music will be pleasant no matter what the notes are. But then we could focus on making sure that the music is actually in sync with the dance. Um, so yeah. Yeah, it would have been a bit surprising if you could you know, generate full songs and like, <laughs> pop music and whatever. Um, but yeah, definitely a, a fun sort of inversion of, of anything I've seen. Okay. And now to zoom out a bit, um, I, I think we can go into some trends uh, and in particular starting out with what's going on with uh, research on creativity and AI and, you know, art and AI. So as far as I've seen, you're you know, more aware of it, but you know this is a small-ish subfield and, and not nearly as big as computer vision or uh, NLP. But in your mind, what are sort of the big, exciting directions in that subfield right now? And I don't know, what, what's happening, I guess? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a few different things Um and it's also that I think there are a few different communities that are involved in this space. Um, so there is, for example, the computational creativity community, um, the Associated Conference is the international conference on computational creativity. Um, and so I think that community tends to have a certain way of looking at this and um, that involves um, sort of computational approaches for sort of having machines exhibit um, some sort of creativity and things of that sort, but also a lot of philosophical questions like you were mentioning earlier that can machines even be creative? Is that even a meaningful question to ask? Um, What is the philosophy of creativity? How do you measure creativity? How do you evaluate? And a lot of these fundamental questions um, that come up there. Um, And then there's also sort of the more machine learning oriented community um, that gets, I think, represented well at the NeurIPS workshop every year. Um, I forget the exact title of it, but it is in AI, creativity, machine learning um, for art and design and so on. Um, I have found that these two don't intersect all that much. I would expect much more intersection, but I feel like there are certain people that I see at ICCC every year, and there are certain people that I see at the NeurIPS workshop, but I don't kind of see uh, a lot uh, going back and forth. Um So, yeah, so I think from my perspective, I think the questions that are of interest to me and I think are open questions in both communities, uh, as far as I can tell, uh, one big one is evaluation, that how do we evaluate if we were to even think about having a benchmark of some sort, which is sort of the bread and butter in, in, in AI in general, in computer vision in particular, what would that even look like? How would we set it up? How would we define the problems? How would we define the evaluation metrics? Um, How would we do evaluation in a consistent way across a bunch of research labs? I think those are all uh, things that we often take for granted in various AI tasks, but are completely open in the AI and creativity space. I think there's a lot of interesting work to be done there. Um, Yeah, so I think that's one. Um, The other that I am personally quite interested in is that sort of from that generative models feel like a very good fit for creative expression, right? Um, And so thinking about questions 
of how can we use generative models? How do we give user control? How can someone feel like they created something if they were using one of these AI tools as the medium of creation? Um, like how can that creator's pride and sense of ownership, control, interactivity, all of those things, um, how do we bring that about in generative models in a way that's effective? Because what you, at least what I ideally want is for someone to be able to create something that they are that they are proud of, where they think there is, that they influence the outcome. You don't want it to be where, oh, I feel like I just kind of input some text and now I have this image that I get as output and I either take it or leave it or I kind of fiddle with the text to try something else um, and I don't have much control beyond that. Um, I feel like it would be nice if there is more, uh, yeah, if there's more control, if it feels more like creative expression to an individual where the AI really is just the tool and is not the thing that's sort of center stage in this process. Um, and yeah, I think there are many open questions and how we can get there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And uh, on, on that topic of uh, this thing of text to image, you've also done a lot of work on uh, multimodal reasoning with language and vision. And if you know, if you're on Twitter and have been following anything of AI, then you know that's been a trend. You've had VQGen plus Clip, which, you know, since April, May is just like everywhere. Mm -hmm. People are sort of loving it. And um, I think part of the appeal, it seems to me, is that, you know, maybe you for people who don't do art, you can, you, can, you know, have a little bit of ownership right away. Um, so yeah, yeah I'm, I'm curious, what have been your feelings and impressions on this whole explosion of VQGAN and Clip? Yeah, I think it's very exciting. I am one of those people that generated a bunch of images and, and, and tweeted about them. And uh, yeah, I think it's fascinating what it can do. And I agree. I think I do think that there is some amount of ownership that you feel. Um, and I think there is some creativity involved in figuring out what those prompts are and which ones will result in a more um, interesting output. And the ones that I've liked in particular are sort of these more abstract um, pieces of text, like around nostalgia or um, sort of collaboration or like things of that sort, where you don't expect a particular object or a particular scene. But it's very interesting to see that what is it that um, that when you when you think about nostalgia or when you talk about nostalgia, what does the web think that means? Like, how does the web choose to? Um, depicted visually, which is what is coming through then in these generative models, right? So I think um, that one, yeah, I think I think that is pretty cool. And all those um, tricks or hacks or whatever you want to call them with like adding Unreal Engine as the thing to get. And that's fascinating, right? Like who knows how many other uh, pockets of tricks are, are out there that we haven't discovered yet as a community. Um, and it is, yeah, I think it's amazing that anyone can try these out and play with it and share what they find. Um, I find that all, all very exciting. Um, there are concerns around bias and so on, right? This is all trained on data on the web. And so there's going to be all sorts of things in there that are, are far from ideal. Um, and so, yeah, I do think that is something that's important to keep in mind. But I do like how everyone can play with it and do something something with it and share it. So, yeah, I've enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, I've also been one of those people who played around <laughs> it, at least early on. And yeah. uh, it's, it's a great time. Just, you know, you can do it on the side, have it running while there's something else. And it's, exactly. it's really fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like for a few weeks, I just had that collab notebook open where I would enter a prompt. And then in between, in between <laughs> meetings, I'd go check, like, oh, I wonder what happened to that one and then try something else. So, uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
And um, kind of going off of that, um, as an artist and um, you know, a researcher as well, but maybe on the artistic side, I think you constantly need to evolve, right? And sort of, yeah, find new avenues to express yourself and, and to explore. So how has uh, that been the case for you? Have you been sort of finding yourself moving in a new direction? I guess either in research or in art, whichever you think is, is more fun. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that you asked that. I just very recently, I think in the last year or so, I I had this realization that I think I've tended to approach research as a creative endeavor, like as a means of um, yeah, creative expression, so to speak. Like even in the kinds of problems I tend to pick up, and um, so anyway. So yeah, I do think that my answer would be similar for for both. Um, I don't tend to have very specific plans or explicit ways of evolving um, in 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 any any particular way. I think it tends to be just based on what I find interesting, what I get exposed to, something that piques my interest. And coming back to my earlier point that if something piques my interest, I do tend to pursue it, follow it, follow through on it, manage to find time for it and so on. And so I think it tends to be just through that somewhat stochastic process of what I get exposed to, what piques my interest, and I'll kind of follow things in that direction, um, both for what I do in art and for what I've done in research um, over the years. Um, yeah, so I don't have anything too terribly insightful to say uh, beyond mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, it was interesting talking to or seeing just tweets by uh, artist Helena Serene, who who says this a lot of kind of you need to continually evolve and not do your own stuff to to keep things interesting, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then to close things off, we have uh, our usual question, which is a little bit inspired by humans of AI, which is. Outside of AI, outside of professional life, what are kind of your main hobbies and interests to occupy your time? Yeah, so I think I think generative art is one. Clearly, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, macrame, origami in the last year or so uh, that I mentioned. Um, I do like uh, writing a little bit. Um, like I have these blog posts and Anytime I feel like I have something useful to say that someone else might get something out of, I do have the instinct of writing it up and putting it out there so that it can be, yeah, so that it can be useful uh, to others. Um, so I've been doing it. I haven't done as much of it as I would like. I do have a list of things that I would like to write about. Um, so I think that's another one. Um, I am into, as perhaps the Humans of AI series might suggest, I'm into sort of deep connections with people like I don't like small talk at all um and I and I do and I do like talking about real things uh with people and so I think that manifests itself in various ways um in like yeah how I hang out with people and and things of that sort so that's something that I enjoy quite a bit um yeah I think that probably covers it yeah I think uh certainly plenty to have you know all these uh, artistic endeavors and uh, i i personally obviously i'm doing this podcast so i think <laughs> that that is pretty fulfilling on top of yeah. research and so on yeah. well uh, that was a really fun interview thank you so much for taking your time no of course this was a lot of fun thanks for having me 
And to do our outro, once again, this is The Gradient Podcast. Check out our associate magazine over at thegradient.pub. If you enjoyed this interview, please support us by sharing this podcast with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing it on Apple and elsewhere. We'd uh, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to tune in to our future episodes.